This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been 50 years almost to the day that the historic ship Falls of Clyde was designated a landmark on the National Register of Historic Places. The date was July 2nd, 1973. And on this day, July 3rd, 2023, we have a conversation about removing that designation to get it out of Honolulu's Pier 7 and its home at 1 Aloha Tower Drive. This morning, we spoke with Ed Sniffen, State Transportation Director, and uh, Dre Kahili, Deputy Director for Harbors, about how the process will work. Sniffen says environmental studies are part of the process, but we hear first from Kahili. DOT has a concern every year during hurricane season, and this conversation with the Friends of Falls of Clyde started in 2014. Fast forward to 2020, we issued an RFP for the removal of the vessel, and in that RFP, we required that the contractor be responsible for the environmental and historic preservation compliance and clearances. We were unsuccessful in awarding a contract, so we're trying a different tact to make sure that we can issue a contract and then the work can be performed. So that's why. So the delisting is part of the historic preservation compliance process. You know, through this process, we are not saying that it's not historically significant, but we are acknowledging that it has lost the historic integrity that's required to remain on these lists. So again, we are just trying to get to a successful RFP and contract award to remove the vessel from Honolulu Harbor. And this is a step in that process. Well, what's involved in that delisting process? How long will it take? So because it's listed both at the state and federal level, we'll need to do processes on both levels. So the first thing is we need to meet with the State Historic Place Review Board. They're convening next in August. We'll see what their action and decision is, and then that will set off the process. But like Ed mentioned, there's a second track, and that's the environmental compliance. So soon after, we know what the... You know, if we get the approval from the board, then we'll proceed also with an environmental assessment. And as we go through these processes, you know, again, the end goal is to get to a successful RFP. And, you know, there will be several months of work between now and and when we do get to that RFP. And the delisting process on the national side? So it starts at the state level, and then we transmit it to a couple of committees and councils within the Department of the Interior that will need to review, consider, and then take appropriate action. Okay, so this is not a quick process. No. So it could be not another year. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. That's why we're starting it now, to make sure that we're moving forward uh, with a time frame to protect the safety and the operations of the harbor, and also to give us that, that time to start addressing the economic vitality of that area. Well, maybe if you can get into that, because what has changed? Do we just now have more interest in what that site could be? Yeah, definitely. So if you if you look at that area now, with Eco uh, looking at redevelopment of their power plant, with rail coming through and TOD uh, building up in that area, with Kathleen Cook looking at uh, potentially revitalizing the area in their properties, we want to make sure that we're available to the market to start addressing our facilities to allow that area to appreciate uh, from an economic perspective. I mean, we we at Harbors depend on all the dollars that come through to offset the cost of operations in those areas so that the public doesn't have to pay for it. The intent is to ensure that we revitalize our portions of that harbor to bring in more income so that we can we can have more income that, that addresses our harbors facilities. If I recall under the uh, HCDA, the Hawaii Community Development uh, Authority rules, that it's possible that a hotel could go up in that area. So it's actually under the Aloha Tower Development Corporation rules. There is zoning for hotel and retail and other commercial space. 
but we don't have any immediate plans for a hotel. I understand that there was some outfit out of Seattle that expressed some interest in possibly developing that area. Uh, can you tell so, us any more about that? So actually, uh, a portion of Pier 7 is still under Harbor's control, not Aloha Tower Development Corporation. And we are in the middle of a public auction seeking responses for prospective tenants in the old Hawaii Maritime Center. So how much interest has that drawn? So we're in the middle of the public auction process, so I don't want to um, you know, disclose anything that might affect the outcome of the public auction, but there, there is interest. That is essentially spurring then the need to get this ship out of the harbor? Uh, again, the biggest priority for us is the safety and operations of, of that harbor. And that, that's what's spurring this conversation, especially because we started this back in 2014. Knowing that it's going to take a while, we want to make sure that we push this forward. But secondarily, as you talked about, um, because the market is already redeveloping that portion of the pier, we want to make sure that we capitalize on that and push our, our portion forward as well. You know, we know the history and the great efforts that volunteers have made to keep this ship in good shape, you know, over the many decades, you know, the Friends of the Falls of Clyde, and then you had another entity, the international group uh, from Glasgow, that was interested in taking it back over to Scotland. How do they fit in this picture? That's a great question. We are in regular contact with the Friends of the Falls of Clyde. They are aware of the process. While the vessel remains impounded, that impoundment can be reversed at any time. So if either group and, you know, with a partner have a plan to safely remove the vessel uh, at their expense, we are very open to allowing that to happen. And it can be repatriated to Scotland or really re- removed from the harbor in any way. I think the delisting is is part of the process that's required because we're looking at expending state funds to have the vessel removed, right? So the RFP is looking for services to remove the vessel. And when, as you know, when state takes certain actions, certain triggers, um, come into play, and we're responding to that. So if if we've got to do that at our expense, there's a process, but a number of options could could happen at any time. Like, it could be returned to Scotland immediately if if the plan to do that is, is safe and feasible. It just seems to me that, you know, over the many years that we've had this discussion that this group wanted to get it out of there. And, Drew, you may have been involved in, in some of those talks, but it just seems like now there's a, a will to really see this through. So I think previously the state didn't have funding available and was unwilling to, to I guess, pay for that. That changed because I think the safety condition and concern is heightened. So we're acting responsibly to, you know, remove the vessel from the harbor at our expense. That's what's changed now. And the big, there's big support from Governor Green his administration and the legislature to make sure this gets done. Everybody understands how important removal of this vessel or any impediments to safety and operations in the harbors are. So we really appreciate the administration support and the legislative support of it. Well, if you're just going to take this to the state uh, commission uh, next month, uh, is it feasible? Is it likely that we can move this thing quickly so that it's out of the harbor by the time the next hurricane season starts, or is it going to be two years? Best case scenario for us is the owner of the vessel removes it. And no state action is necessary for them to do so. Um, that being said, we haven't seen the resources um, to be able to, for them to be able to do so. So if the state takes action on this, we must go through the processes uh, for delisting and for environmental um, studies to ensure that we do this 
correctly. And that may take some time. Uh, we, we still haven't locked down that time frame yet, um, but we're looking at sometime next year for the RFP to go out. Okay, so a big question as to how soon you can remove this. Uh, but where are we at on the Aloha Tower development, you know, RFP uh, on giving that harbor there a facelift? If you are referring to the Aloha Tower development complex, which includes, you know, piers 10 and 11, all the way through piers 5 and 6, uh, you know, we are, there is a current tenant in the complex, so we are having ongoing conversations with them about future plans for redevelopment. If you're talking about Pier 7, which is still under control of DOT, uh, that auction process will end in August, and so we'll likely make an award by September. Okay, so short term or best scenario, it's out of here by the next hurricane season. If not, then we wait until 2025. I think um, we can get more information mm -hmm. on the timeframes as we go through the RFP process. The, the biggest point that we need to get through is the environmental uh, to ensure that we can set our timeframe from there. Um, again, if the owners of the vessel um, had the wherewithal to remove the vessel safely uh, from the harbor, it could happen tomorrow uh, without state action. Um, but if the state has to uh, put our funding into it, um, it's not going to be until next year that we would put in put an RFP out. So, and we can lock down the timeframes a bit more from there. That was Ed Sniffen, State Transportation Director, and uh, Drake Khalili, State Harbors Deputy, talking to us about the steps underway to delist the Falls of Clyde, the four-masted schooner from the State and National Register of Historic Places, and to facilitate the redevelopment of the area, which will include a rail station into the urban core. Uh, we now uh, take a break from regular programming for a test of the emergency alert system. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Wes Skoopnisker, author of Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about evolution, and I'll change your synapses and make you laugh and entice you to be here. Wow. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. More than 40,000 people turned out this weekend to write Skyline, Honolulu's brand new rail system. HBR reporter Sabrina Bowden has been keeping an eye on the grand opening and joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. <clears throat> so nearly 40,000 people rode Skyline this weekend, and the numbers grew by the day. So on Friday, there are about 9,000 people, Saturday, 14,000 people, and then Sunday, more than 1,700 people 
17,000 people visited and hopped on. So there's some confusion on what time the rail closed and those hiccups seem to be worked out by Sunday. And I spoke with so many people who were just so excited to check out the rail. I met a student, Nancy, who was practicing how the rail would be incorporated into her commute to school later this summer. And I met a few riders who didn't see themselves using the rail often, but wanted to just check out where their taxpayer dollars were going. So Glenn Hong lives just above Kaimuki. He rode from Halava to Waipahu on Friday. He stopped at the recommendation of a friend to grab a bite, and he said he wished the rail went a little closer to grade in town, but that overall he was pretty pleased. No, I think uh, the, the train itself is a great experience. Um, it's, it's comfortable, it's a very smooth ride. Um, it appears that they're uh, running really on time, so I don't have any complaints. I think they, as I told one of the supervisors here, they need to do better crowd control over where we got on Halava because they had lines sneaking out into Nimitz, which didn't make sense. So to help out with rail operations, the city enlisted the help of dozens of volunteers from across various departments of the city. And if you rode this weekend, those were the people in blue t-shirts. And generally, they directed people to park, and they asked riders if they were going east or west and directed them to the right platform. Renee Espiu is the city's complete streets administrator. And while she works for the city's Department of Transportation Services, she mainly works with road initiatives. She she previously worked with the rail about a decade ago and she explains how volunteers prepared. So we had to take a like one hour a pretty detailed online course um, to be able to be an ambassador for the opening and it teaches you all about the system in general you know which track runs in which direction mostly so we can help people kind of navigate getting to the right platform um, it teaches you about different features of the train itself you know like which cars have the bike racks um, and uh, different accommodations as well as uh, the different features in the station there's like emergency phones and info phones and um, so we had to learn about all of that in preparation uh, we also went out and did some tours of the stations themselves there's um, Hitachi uh, station attendants that basically are always going to be at those stations and they welcomed us and showed us around and uh, really tried to teach us some of the you know ins and outs of the stations so we're better prepared um, to welcome the public you know I know that uh, a lot of the uh, people had questions about where to park and I think mm -hmm. I was told that the uh, train was going to be uh, running like an hour before it officially opened just to get the volunteers in place. Mm -hmm. The volunteers, you know, they were coming from all across the island. Some of them were people who aren't even in the uh, Skyline segment area. So they, you know, they took the trains, they set up shop, and, you know, they were there all day working in different shifts. And you took it a couple of times, but mm -hmm. you said that you did see a lot of people with their bikes or e-scooters, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of people with bikes. I talked to a few kids. They had they rode their bikes from, I think, it, I think they ended up at Waipahu, and they rode their bikes to their friend's house. You know, so the even though it was that free opening, grand opening weekend, people were still trying to figure out how they want to incorporate it into their lives. So uh, Meredith Berger is the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations and Environment. She visited Oahu last week for the opening of Skyline and took a tour of the station that will service Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. Each station has artwork, and at the Makalapa station, which would be near the shipyard, there's imagery of boats and ships, and Berger says it shows a shared history between the Navy and the island. 
The first ride was really incredible. I'm thrilled to see the first step um, in what I know will be a continued infrastructure plan to really connect the community. Uh, a lot of what I think about it in my work is how do we make sure that we are working sustainably, thoughtfully. I talk about uh, critical infrastructure, climate action, and communities. And this is a project that really hits all three in such a meaningful way. And so for the Navy, um, as this moves out, there are stops that will help connect community to the Navy and also Navy to the community, which is always a rewarding thing. Um, and then as the Oahu community comes together as well, there's so much opportunity to bring there's so much opportunity to bring people together and make sure that everybody is getting the full benefit of all that um, there is to offer here. As the Chief Sustainability Officer for the department as well, I'm thrilled to see how this moves forward in terms of what it means to participate in the ecosystem that is this environment. And so I will look for ways to add as the governor goes towards a really impressive renewable energy portfolio standard and where can the Department of Navy come in to help to complement that so the community can meet those resilience goals. And one estimate is that 10% of shipyard workers will ride Skyline once the segment is open there. Yeah, that should take a few hundred cars off the road, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. Uh, we have been talking to HBR Sabrina Bowden. Read her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Pharmacogenomics, the intersection of pharmacy, what drugs you're taking, and your personal genetics. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the way to know how your body responds to medications, sometimes even before you take them. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, offering guidance on how to help babies sleep safely by always placing baby on their back with a fitted sheet but no toys, blankets, or pillows. Learn more at cpsc.gov. This year it was proclaimed the Year of the Snail, the Kahuli. Hawaii was once home to 750 different species of snails, and most are extinct now. This week we shine the spotlight on snail stories. We kick off with a personal story from Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, whose journey to the state's top job started with the humble snail. Take a listen. This will sound a bit bizarre, but I am grateful to have become governor very indirectly because of snails. And the reason is this, when I was 18, I was in a, a great course in my high school, my public school. I had this wonderful teacher who passed last week. His name was Ed Schroth. He and I were doing the research biology course together. He was our mentor and teacher. And he, it, he I said, I want to do something about the environment as an 18 year old. And he said, well, there's acid rain here. You're in Pennsylvania. And we came up with the idea to study its effects on snails. 
and the snail I studied was Helisoma trivolus. It was just an, a snail that was common to Western Pennsylvania. And so we put together this research project and we studied the impact on the embryology of the snail. So I would go and collect coal off the railroad tracks and then we'd cook the coal to lower the pH of water and then we'd see whether or not it you know, affected snails' um, reproductive rates and their survival. And lo and behold, I end up winning the Westinghouse Scholarship as a result of that research, which sent me to the college of my choice, which sent me to medical school, which sent me to the health corps, which ultimately landed me in Hawaii, and then I became governor. So without the snails... <laughs> and yes, the rest is history. From the snail trail to the governor's chambers, we head out to the hot, dry trails out at Kaena Point. That's where a half a dozen species of native snails went extinct, and the puzzle pieces of their passing are sitting in plain sight. We paid a visit to a snail cemetery where an eroding cliffside has scattered clues to the snail mystery. Why would there be so many dead snails that normally like wet, shady, moist valleys in a hot, dry shoreline? The story starts with a marine biologist who never thought he would tread into land snail territory, but just a stone's throw from the ocean is a treasure trove of natural history here in the islands. We took a trek with Hawaii Pacific University biology professor Brendan Holland, who recalled that during a previous visit, he and his researcher, Samantha Arsenault, came across two dozen snail shells eroding from the cliffside. Those shells of long ago were more uh, of a half a dozen extinct species. And in a short visit this summer, we came across these snail clues, which made this professor wonder why they died here, what led to this mass extinction event. If you look at a snail uh, shell with its pointy end down, the opening of a shell is generally on the right side, like being right-handed. This is special because, as you can see, its opening, or its, its aperture, opposite end of the apex, is on the left side. He's a lefty. He's a lefty, just like me. It's a, basically, this is a pretty unusual snail. It's in an endemic family. So again, biology people get kind of excited about endemism in Hawaii. This is the only species of animal or plant that the entire family evolved only in Hawaii. They're called the Amostridae, and this family had about 325 different species before humans started altering the habitat, releasing invasive species. Again, this, this lineage went extinct long before human contact, so long before people had arrived in Hawaii. So probably about 10,000 years ago, we think, that's the youngest shell we've dated with radiocarbon dating at Kaena Point. We think this might have gone extinct around that time. And that's probably also a time when this entire ecosystem was drying and warming and the vegetation was completely changing rapidly to be more of this scrubby kind of open arid type from mesic, which is sort of almost rainforest, you know, where there was complex canopy and broad-leaved native trees and palms, um, which we think was sort of more like the conditions when these were thriving. But you can see there are literally thousands and thousands of shells eroding from this surface, and they're probably also tumbling down, and we know that because, you know, in, in this handful, we probably would see dates from around 10,000 years ago, back to as old as 46,000 years. All together, meaning that, right, they, they died in place upslope, and then now they're just accumulating here in what is called, paleontologists call this a death assemblage. 
quaint term. <laughs> the graveyard. It's yeah, no graveyard. Yeah, it's a graveyard, but it's not all organized by date of death, right? It's all mixed. Yeah, in this graveyard. But so this is in the same family, believe it or not, this little tiny one. Which again, this is a dextral one. This will be on the quiz. <laughs> Kidding. And this one turns the other way. So these are in the same these are in the same family. They're actually different genus level taxonomy. Then we see this super tiny one here. This is a helicynid. Believe it or not, that's an adult. So it's maybe two millimeters total length. And that, that was an adult snail. And we've identified this one to species. Some of these have yet to be described. The thing that you know allowed me to say, hey, this is kind of unusual, was I had just started working at the University of Hawaii as a tree snail conservation biologist. And so I had been sort of training my eye to separate sort of the difference between the lineages that live in the marine environment, and there's lots and lots of species in the ocean, but they're fundamentally different looking than these land snails. And so all of these land snails here in this open area were so shocking to me. At that time, we were working with some of the Acatinella species um, where in order to get on site, we were taking helicopters literally to the high ridges and summits of the Waianae Mountains and the Koalau Mountains and working in you know, downpours and cloud forests in these really rich, you know, vegetated, dripping, mossy environments. And so these are some of the same lineages, the same families. But if you look around, you just say, well, wait a second, what's wrong with this picture? There's nothing but grass here, dry grass, right? It's open, it's exposed. Yeah, plain sight. Yeah, it is right out in the open. So yeah, so, so I did realize something weird was going on here. And we've subsequently done some isotope dating and uh, stable isotope analysis and have begun to kind of reconstruct what this might have been like 10 to 45,000 years ago. And sure enough, all the data that we're looking at says that this was indeed a, a wetter, cooler environment with much more precipitation, um, cooler daytime temperatures, and more complex vegetation. And Holland tells us it wasn't until he could carbon date these shelves that he had the data that would explain why these snail stories matter. The isotope testing looks at the participation, uh, precipitation and the plants that existed back in the day, and carbon dating suggests that these snails went extinct 10 to 45,000 years ago. It actually puts an estimated time of death, right? So the actual date that the shell stopped accumulating carbon and so the range of ages of these shells so far has been between 10,000, that's the youngest shell we've tested, 10,000 years before present, and 40, 46,000 years before present. So there's a range of time in all of the shells that we've analyzed that is just that little window, and we don't really know why other than we assume that at about 10,000 years ago, conditions became unsuitable for these, all of these species. This is a community extinction, right? So we see maybe seven species that are all extinct and all have representative taxa. So in biology, we talk about extant versus, I try to pronounce it very clearly because it sounds so similar to its opposite term, which is extinct. Extinct is something that no longer exists. Extant means it's still present and still alive. So all of these have extant relatives in Hawaii that live in, again, very, very different conditions. So you never 
thought you'd be a snail sleuth. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I am? That's awesome. No, I, I have always been interested in conservation biology and always interested in diversity and what drives diversity and what diminishes diversity. And so this is such a fascinating place to me because I've spent most of my 24 years in Hawaii as a biologist studying conservation of species that are being impacted by human activity. So human activity sort of is this ever-present sort of, it's the you know, the, the gorilla in the room, if you will, for conservation biologists. But here we have a case of a community that went extinct long before human contact in the islands. And so it's really interesting to me to, to see a natural, you know, sort of broad scale extinction event right here before our eyes that happened pretty recently due to changing climate conditions. I mean, this is, this is so exciting as somebody who, again, is, is studying extinction and studying diversity. And one of the thoughts that I've had through studying this you know, event that happened out here is I want to be careful to contextualize this extinction event as a non-anthropogenic event. This doesn't change the fact that 95% plus of the extinction that's happening on the planet right now is, and we call it the Anthropocene, right? We're in this new era, this new mass extinction event that's happening because of pollution, habitat loss, overharvesting, invasive species, the usual list of suspects. And I don't want this to be ammunition for people to say, look, extinction has always been part of nature. Yes, it has, but this is a rare example in studies now of conservation biology where humans had nothing to do with this. That does not change the fact, it does not take away from the idea that the vast majority of the biodiversity crisis that we're experiencing is caused by human activity. I mean, this is like an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> you come out here, you don't even know, you know, what, what you're looking at. Yeah, as I was saying, Catherine, I've been in Hawaii for, you know, 25 years, 24 years, and I saw this the first year I moved here, and, and, I, and it was sort of tantalizing, but it was just in the back of my mind. It wasn't a priority until recently we were able to get funding, you know, to pay for the analyses that have to be, we have to send the shells off to the mainland, and it's quite costly, so each shell is, you know, upwards of $250 to get these little numbers back for the isotope ratios. And so tantalizing and a little bit, you know, a long time in the coming in a lot of ways for me personally, as well as, you know, nobody else has studied these to this extent. And so now we're gaining a lot of momentum and realizing that there are deposits like this on neighbor islands as well. And so we hope to expand this study and see if this was a sort of a simultaneous paleoclimate uh, change that led to these sort of community extinction events or whether, you know, there were differences on a small scale, we assume that this was happening across the islands. For example, at Mo'omomi, the TNC reserve on uh, western Molokai, I've been out there and there are handfuls of shells there as well. And they're all different species than here. And we have yet to sample and identify and then isotope, do the isotope analyses of those as well. So I guess when you think back to the day when you were out here and within a space of two hours you hit 2,000 shells, I mean, this is something. 
Yeah, and so my student Samantha Arsenault, who finished her master's degree recently, and I came out here on a particularly hot summer day. We had planned this in advance. So in addition to the isotope analysis, we also want to study things like, you know, sort of reconstructing what the evenness and species richness was at this site. And you can tell, Catherine, from just the few minutes we spent, the most common species is, is this little guy, right? This little dextral amostrid. Um, and for sure enough, we set a timer, we counted, you know, we just said, okay, go and collect as many snails as we could in an hour. And then we take them back to the laboratory, we sort them by species, and we can, you know, statistically say, here's the most common, it's this percentage of the total, um, here's the rarest one, and that sort of thing. And that, that's the one way to sort of begin to understand what the diversity of these lineages was when they were thriving out here, so. Voila, the snail secret. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. Oh, this has been pleasure. a real eye-opener, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is like, it's coming for treasure. Yay, I'm glad you Bye. could come out. And that was Brendan Holland, HPU professor, sharing a teeny tiny native snail story as we kick off Snail Week. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. How did a pet planet survive after being consumed by its host star? Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to explain this phenomenon. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also stuff we might be able to spot in the sky. Thanks to astronomer Christopher Phillips, that is. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, look out for Mars and Venus in the western sky after sunset. Both planets will set at around 9.45 p.m., so be sure to catch them. The moon this week will be passing through its full phase, and so spotting faint objects in the night sky is going to be challenging indeed. And for our holiday edition, ladies and gentlemen, Chris has pulled out all the stops. What a great story we've got here. I'm heavily intrigued by this one. Local connection to a planet that might have survived after the death of its star. It is a weird one. A team of astronomers from a couple of Mauna Kea observatories, Keck and CFHT, led by the UH Institute for Astronomy, have discovered something quite extraordinary around a distant star, a planet that has seemingly survived being engulfed by its host star. This planet is known as Halla and was discovered back in 2015, but it is only now that astronomers are beginning to understand its bizarre circumstances. It is thought that most planets close into a star do not survive the evolution of their host star, but apparently this one has. To give this some context, go over what would normally happen when this went down. Well, the star in question is called Baikdu, and it is thought to have been very much like our own sun at one point. As sun-like stars approach the end of their lives, they swell up into what's called a red giant. This signals one of the final phases of their life. During this phase, they can swell to an enormous size, engulfing any planets that are close in. And and this is probably going to be happening to the sun. It is, but thankfully not for several billion years, so not to worry. <laughs> <laughs> However, when it does evolve into a red giant, it will swell up and the inner planets of Mercury and Venus will be completely consumed by the fiery outer layers of the sun. We aren't sure if it will get as far as the Earth, but our planet will be barbecued for sure. End of that family tree, huh? It sure is. <laughs> and Planet Hollow, though, uh, surviving this disaster? 
Apparently so, which is very strange, since the host star did indeed swell up into a red giant, but has now shrunk back to a, about one-tenth of its original size. Things got to be all messed up, though, huh? Can't be a great experience having that happen. That would ruin anybody's evening. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that this event was nothing short of catastrophic for the planet. For example, we have no idea what the atmosphere of this planet was like before it was engulfed, but you can bet it looks a lot different now. It does beg the question, though, how many planets such as Hala are there? And if the planet was changed as it was engulfed, did it somehow change the star, too? These are questions that astronomers will be seeking to answer over the coming years. And I know one who will be digging into the topic for us, and that's you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Maui's Wailuku Civic Complex, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Sarah Moyers is a staff sergeant in the United States Air Force. Her MOS, which stands for Military Occupational Specialty, or her job, is singing for the United States Air Force Band of the Pacific at Pearl Harbor, Hickam. Take a listen. For purple mountain majesty does one become a musician in the military? Well, the conversation Stephanie Hahn sat down with Sarah Moyers in our studio to talk about life as an Air Force jazz vocalist. How did you start? Were you first wanting to be a join the armed forces or did you first want to be a singer I gotta ask definitely I wanted to be a singer first which even that I kind of came into later in life compared to a lot of people in the music industry but near the end of my time in college that's when I found out that all of our military service branches had bands um, which is a great career choice if you're a new musician trying to get your footing in that industry. I noticed that you seem to be mentored by a lot of the military musicians that you studied under them. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so my school, which is George Mason University, the jazz faculty there is largely made up of people who are either current service band musicians in the D.C. area or prior service so very similar work to what I'm doing now, and that's kind of how I found out that this was even a career option. So tell me about the jazz musician and the military. Is this a popular uh, route for a jazz musician or a military person to be in jazz music? It's, I wouldn't say it's super common. A lot of the musicians that I've worked with in my time in the military have more of a classical background, but 
the job is really it's kind of a jack of all trades kind of position. So you do get people with different skill sets like musical theater or you know classical voice or occasionally people who went to school for jazz. We all kind of found our way here doing what we do now, which is a little bit of everything. It's a mixed bag. So how did you come into singing and being a jazz vocalist? Because it is a very specific type of a musical area. Definitely. Right? It's it's a little little bit niche. I was going to college for English initially, and um, just for fun, I saw a vocal ensemble, and I thought I'd try it out just for a extracurricular kind of thing to do. Through that, I met some people who told me that my school had our like first ever jazz voice teacher, because prior to that, it had been purely classical voice. Uh, so they encouraged me to reach out to her, and I started taking lessons and Next thing I knew, I was in the big band, I was in the combos, I was in like all of the vocal jazz groups. Um, it just kind of snowballed from there. I found that I really liked the style of the music, the history, the culture, the lyrics, the chords. It's just, it's the music that moves me. And after I kind of discovered it, even though it was pretty late in life, I guess, comparative to a lot of other music students, it just drew me in. I couldn't couldn't stop once I started. And had you considered joining the military prior to this? Are you from a military family? I mean, this is a very specific. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I had never envisioned myself being in the military. My father was a naval officer, but he got out before I was born. It just wasn't really an option that I had thought about at all because I was going to school for English. You know, it doesn't exactly right. doesn't exactly mesh. Um, we always thought maybe one of my brothers would join a service, but it ended up being me instead. <laughs> How does one area influence the other area of your life? I credit it all to my voice teacher. Uh, her name is Darden Purcell, and she was a vocalist with the U.S. Air Force Band High Flight, uh, which is a premier band based out of Washington, D.C. I remember we were talking about the future in the music industry and getting started as a young vocalist because it's very competitive. <laughs> And you work lots of late nights, you spend your days teaching, you know, the kind of classic starving musician hustle. And she asked me, you know, have you ever considered joining a service band? It might not be exactly what you went to school for musically, but it was a great option to get some experience and travel the world. How has being in Hawaii shifted or influenced your musical interests personally have you changed that we have a very strong local music scene here and sound has this influenced you at all it has it has to be honest i haven't done a huge amount of jazz here just because there is such a like rich musical culture here that we're trying to focus on as a military band um, it's our job to try to highlight local artists do music that we think people here would enjoy as we're interfacing with the community. Um, and then, of course, there's a huge demand for top 40 like pop songs, rock songs, classics like that, just because of the nature of our mission. Um, we do a lot of community outreach, not only on the islands, but throughout the Indo-Pacific region. So it's kind of a 
kind of a situation where the music we perform is based on the desires of the country that we're visiting for a specific reason, or an embassy requests nothing but Michael Jackson, so that's what we do. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, what are the like the different areas? What kind of music do they like? You're saying that we like pop music here in Hawaii? Yes, yes, pop, just uh, like reggae, island style, all the classics that we enjoy um, living here. I love Fia. That's my new go-to uh, that I've discovered since moving out here because I hadn't heard him at all uh, back when I lived on the East Coast. Um, for our unit in Japan, it's primarily jazz or I'd say like lots of older hits. They seem to request that. We have a unit out in Germany, lots of jazz and pop. And then we find on the mainland bands, they tend to prefer kind of classic Americano. You have country, you have rap, you have rock kind of oldies, you have Motown. It depends, but definitely I've noticed for our overseas locations, which are Hawaii uh, and then Yokota, Japan, and then Ramstein in Germany, there tends to be much more of an emphasis on jazz music, which is very fun for those of us right. who studied that. And why do you think that would be? Isn't that a little, that's different, right? It is different. Uh, it's definitely not common in the U.S. mainland area um, to see a desire for that. I think it's because, and this is just this is just my theory. I feel like American music hits a little bit later in the rest of the world. I think there's partially the appreciation there, and then just much more of an emphasis on the arts in general in uh, European and Asian cultures is what I'm starting to notice as I move throughout this career. And so you're a vocalist, but I gotta ask, are you also a music composer? Do you write songs? I don't tend to compose a huge amount. I have done some of that, but I really prefer arranging. Oh. Yeah, that's um, that's my real love in the jazz genre, um, where this is my first year as a music director for the jazz band at work for me. So that's been a lot of fun, just learning how to write for horns and handcrafting arrangements based on the like individual voice or skill set of any one person in my ensemble. It's a lot of fun. You're actually writing down, you're notating. You're yes, all wow. of that, yeah. Okay, that's pretty intense. And so what are some songs, music that people request that surprises you? I guess it really shouldn't be a surprise considering that a new movie just came out. But last year, we were headed to Malaysia to work with the Royal Malaysian Air Force Band, and they wanted to do like the Top Gun song. That, oh, really? Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that one came up. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think. You know, certain areas, are there certain songs that you notice that people like? For example, when I was overseas in Korea or even in Hong Kong, Dancing Queen by ABBA would play all the time. And I have no idea why. I mean, it's just continuous for 40 years or something. That's, that's too funny. Oh, that's a great song. I wish, right. I wish someone <laughs> would request that. I love singing that song. Yeah, it it just depends on the location or we'll get a one-off request. Um, like here, we get asked to do a lot of Bruno Mars, which isn't surprising because oh, he's okay. fantastic um, and we love doing his music. So you must have an amazing repertoire in your mind because <laughs> you must have to be able on demand to play or sing what, at least 100 different songs is my guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's one of those things, the more you practice memorization, the easier it sticks because you've got your jazz catalog, which, you know, that's, you know, 
500, 600 songs, and then you have your pop music, you have your foreign language pieces, it does eventually start to stick, which is is nice. I remember when I started out, it took me forever to <laughs> just get every every verse perfect, all those lyrics memorized. I, I'll definitely miss it when I move on from here. That was Sarah Moyers of the United States Air Force Band of the Pacific talking to HPR's Stephanie Hahn. Check out the conversation page of our website later today for the band's upcoming performances. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we'll continue Snail Week. We'll take you to the site of a new snail-rearing facility that scientists believe will be safer in the event of a hurricane. Call our talkback line if you have a story to share, 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation where you find your podcasts or online on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We're taking a break for the holiday, but we'll be back on Wednesday with more of the conversation. Thank you.